can you believe that it's the 1st of December? It is almost Christmas. Some of you have small children and they have been asking you, when is it Christmas? When is it Christmas? How many sleeps until Christmas? The, the checkers where we live had their Christmas decorations up in October. Thank you for making my life so confusing with my six-year-old who has no concept of months because they see the Christmas decorations. I've been telling how many sleeps it is until Christmas since October. So thanks for checkers. But um, yeah, up here on the North Coast, you guys really feel the like, Christmas season um, with the chaos on your roads and on your beaches and in your malls and maybe in your home. And Christmas can be a time that's really, really busy. So for some people, that, that busyness is fun. It's exciting, there's stuff going on, um, you've been waiting for Christmas, you're that person who put your Christmas tree up in October and you're super amped. But I know for others, Christmas is actually really stressful. Maybe your work actually gets busier around this time of year. Um, maybe finances are, are strained. Or maybe family situations are complicated. And Christmas kind of brings that all into the limelight. I mean, I know for others, Christmas is a sad time. Like, it can be really lonely when, when you're not close to your family or when it's the first Christmas without, the first Christmas after the divorce, or the first Christmas since that person passed away, and you're actually dreading this advent, this kind of build up to Christmas season. And I know for others, you know, Christmas isn't really about faith or, you know, religion or anything at all. Christmas is kind of just this thing that happens in December. But it's hard when the expectation and the, the pressure of Christmas is really disconnected from your reality where we're singing, you know, joy to the world and peace to all men and life feels chaotic and crazy and stressful. So what happens when it's like happy, 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 joy, 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 and life is not kind of in that same zone and there's this gap between um, what we're supposed to be feeling and experiencing at Christmas and, and isn't really what's going on. And so maybe for you, for a number of different reasons, you kind of wonder where God is in Christmas. Maybe God feels a little invisible, a little far off, a little disconnected from what's going on, possibly because God's just kind of drowned out in the loudness of life and silenced because we have so many other things that we have to give our attention to. Maybe God feels distant and far, you know, because we're going through stuff and we're kind of wondering, like, does God even care? God maybe feels indifferent, like he doesn't really know what's going on in the detail and in the struggle. Or perhaps God just seems unreachable and cold. Maybe a fairy tale. Maybe it's just this like, you know, well, Christmas is just this kind of mythical, cute fairy tale thing that we tell the kids. And so my question that I want to wrestle with for each of us today, regardless of why that question is in our life, the question I want to ask is, can we find God in all the chaos? Whether your chaos is just busyness and fun, whether your chaos is stress and anxiety, or, or whether it's simply that life is kind of disconnected from this idea of a, a God who cares, maybe God feels invisible to you today because of health or finances or, or anxiety or depression. Maybe you're watching someone you love lose sight of God. Where does God feel invisible to you? The season of Advent, the whole kind of idea of, of this time of year, Advent means coming, arrival, something that's about to come. Advent calendar kind of speaks of the preparation for Christmas. 
And really, it's a preparation, it's a, a time of anticipating and waiting and getting ready for something. And yes, Advent's about counting down the sleeps to, to Christmas, but actually, Advent is not just about preparing our homes or our budgets or our Christmas lists or our, our calendars. Advent is about preparing our hearts, about getting ready for the arrival, for the presence, for the kind of tangible experience of Jesus. That one of my favorite lines in any of the Christmas carols is from Joy to the World. Let every heart prepare him room. The invitation is for us to prepare our hearts, to make room in our hearts for Jesus. And there are practices that we can um, that we can do, that we can bring into our lives, that actually heighten our awareness of God's here-ness. There are practices that we can do to make ourselves aware of God's activity around us and in us. Because when we prepare, we become aware of God's activity. When we prepare, think of when you're preparing for uh, someone to come to your home. You're aware that they're gonna be there. My sister always like lays out the hospitality thing when I go visit her in Cape Town. She'll have chocolates on the pillow and water next to the bed and a towel wrapped up. And I'm like, oh, it's like a fancy hotel. Also, she doesn't have kids, so it's amazing. Um, but I know that she's aware of me and my arrival because she's prepared the room. That's what the invitation is for us now, that we would be ready for Jesus because we've prepared the room in our hearts. And so for the next four weeks of Advent, we're gonna be looking at practices that raise our awareness of God. Practices that actually kind of, spiritual practices that kind of can make the invisible God visible to us because we started to notice, to, God has been able to grab our attention. And so this morning, the first practice I wanna look at is a practice we find in the life of John the Baptist. And what we're gonna to do today in our time together is a little different from a normal sermon. I'm not gonna do all the talking this morning because what I wanna do is, is talk about the scriptural precedent for this practice, to look into the Bible and, and to kind of get, increase our awareness of God's, God's activity by looking through scripture and seeing what can we see here in the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, in the gospels, what do we see where people have noticed God? Are, are there places, are there people who have been aware of God and we can look at how they managed to do that and learn how to do that ourselves? But then what I'm gonna do with, together with, with you is, is kind of put into practice some of these things we've looked at, that we've had the scriptural precedent but also the spiritual practices of communion and reflection. So it's kind of a mix, it's not just me teaching, but we're gonna give you some space to process this on your own. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're just kind of here because you're curious about faith and about, um, about church life, and here's a perspective that you could take with us. Because the, the story that we're gonna be looking at from the Gospels, they're from a historical text point of view, from an ancient text point of view, what we're gonna be looking at is really widely agreed upon as historically accurate. 
um, these stories are, are kind of legitimately and academically studied through you know, proof texting and all the kind of things that people use to, to establish whether a document did actually happen, what's recorded in a document. So maybe you can put aside what you've learned in Sunday school, what's been preached at you over time or what you've heard in the media and kind of be open to these eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And maybe you'll kind of see why we're trying, we don't wanna be church goers. We wanna be Jesus followers. That this is not about religion, it's about actually following the life of Jesus and figuring out how that intersects. And, and because of that, um, you know, knowing Jesus is not about knowledge, it's about experience. It's not about information, it's about our lives intersecting with the life of a real person, that person of Jesus. And so you might find that our prayer and our singing and the other practices like communion that we're gonna have today, while you may not fully be into it or understand it, that you know, it might become more real to you if you can hold as a filter that we're looking at the life of Jesus. Um, so yeah, thanks for, for coming along and being curious about, about your own spiritual life. So we're gonna start off by looking at this person called John. And John was known as John the Baptist. Um, he wasn't from the Baptist church. Um, the Baptist church came later. And I, I like to think of him as John the Baptizer. He was a baptizer, that's what he did. Um, and, and he was a very special person. He was born just a few months before Jesus. Um, so he was a baby while the whole kind of you know, shepherds and wise men and stars and all that kind of thing happened. So you don't typically find him in the Christmas story. You're not, probably not gonna see John the Baptist in your kid's nativity play. You're more likely to find like a lobster or an octopus or something in a Christmas play than you will John the Baptist. And that's because his parents were actually a critical part of the origins of Jesus' life. They were actually amongst the very first people we meet in the Gospels, in these accounts of, of Jesus. Um, Zachariah was Jesus' uncle. He was a priest, he was a religious man. But something happened to him where he went past the point of being a religious man performing his priestly duties. He had an encounter with a messenger from God. One day, he was in the temple and this messenger comes to him and speaks to him and tells him that his wife is gonna have a baby. And this really seemed impossible to Zechariah because first of all, they were old um, and, and, and they hadn't had a child. And the Bible says, you know, Elizabeth couldn't have children, but we didn't really know that it was actually her problem. Like it could have been Zechariah's issue. You know what I mean? Like there isn't that much detail, but you know, the wife always gets blamed for these things. So I don't know. Zechariah isn't really that impressive if you look through the Gospels, he's, he, he struggled. But this is what the messenger, messenger says to him. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, God has heard your prayer. Maybe there's some people in this room this morning and you've been speaking to God, asking God for something, something that seems impossible, something that hasn't really shown up in your life yet. Maybe it is even like this couple, infertility. The messenger from God says to him, God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And then we start, this is the first time we start to get a glimpse into what John was like and what his life was gonna look like. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. 
and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He, still speaking of John, will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah, another prophet. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And that's why John's story ties into Advent because it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. John will speak to people in a way that brings reconciliation to families that have been separated. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. He will, he will say things to people that help them to get their lives back on track. Where they've lost their way, they will find their way. So first of all, we see about John is that he's a miracle baby like literally a miracle baby, but he's been born with a purpose. He'll be set apart. There's something distinctive about his life. He's not like other people in his lifestyle and in his stature. But most importantly, what we see about John is that he will prepare people for the arrival of the Lord, of Jesus. And how does he do this? There's a heart change. He turns people's hearts towards each other and towards wisdom and towards God. And so we learn from John in the season of Advent because John was here to prepare people for a change of heart and to prepare people to see God. And so maybe you're wondering, how can I see God? God feels invisible to me. God feels distant from me. In the life of John, there's something there that helps people to see God. Then secondly, we find out that John's mother, Elizabeth, was actually Mary's cousin. Um, and so Jesus and John are our cousins. And these two pregnant women, when they meet, in the, in the time of their pregnancy, something special happens. This is from Luke 1. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child, John, leapt within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Even in his mother's womb, somehow this connection between John and Jesus, John, John's leaping in his mother's womb, his mother suddenly recognizes the Lord. She knows that the Lord, the Messiah, that Jesus is coming. John is able to kind of bring other people around him to kind of notice the presence of Jesus, even in the womb. But then we don't hear about John for a while. The gospels go silent on his childhood and his teenage years, and we meet him again as a, as a young adult. In the book of Mark, actually, and I find this really interesting if you look at the gospels, um, the book of Mark totally skips over like Jesus' birth, the angels and the star, and that's not in the book of Mark. He starts like this. Mark 1 says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. There were prophecies, there was expectation, there were little glimpses of what was to come in the, in the Jewish history, in the Old Testament. Look. I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way, your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord is coming. Clear the road for him. Who was this messenger that's gonna clear the way for Jesus' arrival? It was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins, to show that their hearts had changed, 
John's preaching triggered people's hearts to be transformed and changed and turn to God to be forgiven. Something about John's message made people's hearts shift and there was forgiveness. All of Judea, including all the people of Jerusalem, went out into the wilderness to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, when they owned up to what was going in their lives, when they vocalized the transforming something that was happening in their hearts, he baptized them in the Jordan River. John, his clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. John was a bit of a hippie. He was like, did the whole off the grid minimalist thing. John announced, someone is coming who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water. In other words, the, 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 the um, practices that I give you, that baptism is changing something in your hearts, but he, this one to come, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John was a great voice to the, the Jewish people of first century Judea, but to us today as well, saying, get ready, clear the way. Someone is coming. Something great is about to happen. Get ready to see Jesus. From his mother's womb to, to the encounter with the crowds outside Jerusalem, somehow John was able to, to kind of alert people to Jesus. John's message caused a, a huge stir and an expectation that the Messiah was coming. Like kids before Christmas, people were going, something's about to happen. The Jewish people were waiting, and maybe you're waiting. Maybe you're waiting for God to show up in your life. You have questions, or you have unbelief, or, or you're just not, there, there, there's a need that you're bringing before God, and you're saying, God, where are you? We're waiting for you to show up. This is not unlike the people that John spoke to. In John 1, we read, about how the moment when Jesus and John met as adults. And this is a different John. This is John, the son of um, Zebedee, a friend of Jesus. But he describes the interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, there it is, that word, look, see, recognize, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one I've been talking about. When I said, a man is coming after me who's far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. At first, John didn't recognize that Jesus was the Savior, the one that people had been longing for, but he's able to see that Jesus has come. Something in him recognized Jesus. Something in him could see Jesus when no one else knew who Jesus was. He saw the invisible God made visible. And perhaps he could teach us how to do the same thing. So in John's life, we see some unusual practices, an unusual posture towards life. And I believe when we look at them, and we practice them, we too can start to say, look, there's Jesus. Here's the one we've been waiting for. Here's the one I've been expecting. Here's the one I've been searching for. So the first practice that we see in John's life that we too can adopt is the practice of solitude. 
John spends a lot of time in the wilderness, out of the city, out of the hustle and the bustle and the loud and the noisy. He stepped away from the flurry of life and he spent time in silence on his own. And there's something about that that was able to increase his awareness of Jesus. And I think sometimes, especially at this time of year, the, the busyness and the, the freneticness and the traffic and, and the people, and we're with people all the time, whether it's work or family or on social media and on the phone and WhatsApp, we're just like, there's so much going on that we, that we don't even notice that God is at work. We don't even, we're not even aware that, that God is doing something. And we may need to step away from all of that for a few minutes for an hour or so, for a walk, for some time alone, to sit a little longer by ourselves in the car before we get out. But to be, bring ourselves into solitude can increase our awareness of Jesus. The second thing we see about John is his clarity. Not just in his words, clear the way, but actually you get a sense that somehow John has managed to clear his life and get rid of distractions. He has a clarity of mind, a focus on what he's trying to do and what he's trying to say. And I think, you know, this time of year, we, we, we can lose our way where there's so much asked of us and demanded of us and we have to be in more than one person, place at a time and it's, it's overwhelming. And we can miss out on Jesus trying to like speak to us, connect with us, be present in our lives because you don't have clarity, there's just so much going on, so many distractions, so many things in the path ahead of us. The third thing we see in John is a sense of simplicity. From his diet, to his clothing, to his lifestyle, John knew that somehow simplicity could heighten your awareness of God. I don't think it's and a coincidence that when the invitation to simplicity can make us aware of Jesus, the consumerism at Christmas can drown it out. Of this more, 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 more stuff, more food, more people. And John's lifestyle kind of shows us a different way where he wasn't drawing attention to himself through his busyness and his clothing and the food on the table. He, was, he always deflected it to Jesus. And he wore, he, he wore camel hair and he ate, he ate, you know, raw vegan honey or whatever. And I know there's some hippies here in Salt Rock who are also like that. But there's something about that simplicity of life that can help us become aware of God's presence. And John also doesn't seem to care what people think about him. He doesn't seem to care what people think about him. And that can so often be the thing that's keeping us from noticing God is actually here. He's not distant, he's not far off, he's not invisible, he's with us. But we can be so caught up in what other people think about us, about people pleasing at Christmas and making sure everybody's happy and making sure that our present isn't the junky, cheap one under the tree or that you know, our life is perfect on Instagram and the whole family's wearing matching red and white clothes. You know, and like everybody's we can be so caught up in that stuff that we can sometimes miss the simplicity of God's voice in our lives. The fourth thing that we see in that passage of Scripture in Mark 1 that we read is that John's teachings motivated people to confess, 
to, and confession is not getting into like a little cubicle and whispering your deepest, darkest secrets to a priest. Confession is bringing into the light the things in your heart that are weighing you down and you've kept hidden. You know, when we bring things out into the light, they loosen their grip on us. And, and John kind of, he would say things, he would teach in a way that people would confess and it would untangle the crowdedness of what was going on in their lives. It would give them a sense of that there's nothing that I'm hiding from God and so God is not hidden from me. And the invisible God becomes visible because we open ourselves up by saying, hey God, this is happening in my life. These are the thoughts I'm having. These are the struggles I'm having. This is the fear or the anxiety I'm walking around with right now. And that confession can kind of open up our eyes where they've been cast down. The other thing that John's teachings lay out before us is forgiveness. John was passionate about forgiveness. He preached about it a lot because he wanted people to turn to God and be free from their issues and their struggles and their worries. And when we ask God to forgive us, what we're doing is kind of letting go of our grip on things. We're dropping our God and letting God in. And, and somehow when we forgive, it strips things back. And there's nothing in between God and us anymore. When you say to God, God, help me forgive this person. Or when you say, God, forgive me. We start to notice that God is at work. And then finally we see that, God, that, that John's life, from, from, from the womb to the water of baptism, John was aware of the Holy Spirit. John had, had this ability to kind of say, you know what, what we're experiencing right now it's just a little glimpse of what God has for us, that there is more, that God's presence can be more tangible, more real, more experiential. There was a greater transformation coming that the Holy Spirit would facilitate, and John prepared people's hearts for that. Now, I know that we're not all John the Baptists. I have two sisters that live in Cape Town, and they're both total hippies. They live in Colk Bay, and they're like, organic vegans, and they juice every morning, and you know, greet the sun, and whatever, and they're like, they're real hippies, and, and I kind of, you know, when I think of John, I think he probably would have been a little bit like, weird, and some of us are a little bit more mainstream. Some of us, you know, wear polyester, and buy our honey at checkers, you know, not from the beehive. And, um, but the prophets, like John, we're, we're, not, we're not all called to be prophets or live like the prophets. We, the prophets are on the fringes of society. They're right on the edge. Uh, they, they, they kind of skirt the normal and they call those of us in the mainstream, those of us in the center, to the edges a little more. They kind of call us to something different, something better, something greater, something that they saw before us that then slowly starts to become revealed to us. That's what prophets through the Bible would do. And, and John is kind of, as a prophet, giving people a picture and calling this community to change, to be aware that the Christ, the Messiah, is here is amongst us. He's heralding a change that everyone can lean into. That God is not there, but here. That God is not distant, but close. That God is not hands off, but at work. Will we notice that? And so what we're gonna do now together is to take some time to notice 
the activity of God by reflection. The, the first practice that we're looking at in this Advent season is reflection. And my heart is that as you reflect now during our time together, you will become aware that God has in fact been at work, is currently present, and is part of the way forward for each of us. That God is not the big guy upstairs, the guy in the sky, but that God is here. And so the first step in becoming aware of God's presence, and that's what we're gonna do now, is communion. And I was reflecting on communion, and you know, if you're not a Christian, communion's weird, like drink blood and eat the body, and it's this whole like death thing, it's a bit strange. But we use communion as a basis for this practice reflection because communion reminds us that Jesus had a body and Jesus shed blood. It reminds us that the divine became human, that God walked in our shoes. Communion reminds us that Jesus experienced the full spectrum that humanity does. And so everything we reflect on, whether it's painful or joyful, whether it's, it's a loss or a celebration, all that stuff, Jesus felt that. Jesus experienced that. And when we reflect on, over communion, we kind of see that, that there's no gap that's too great for God to, to close. Communion reminds us that there's nothing that there's nothing we could do or believe or say or think that could distance us so far from God that Jesus couldn't bring God close. And Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus on the cross reminds us that he was the invisible God made visible, flesh and blood. And so as you take communion, won't you reflect on the fact that Jesus is with us now, in us and with us, and has been for centuries. On this table, on the sides of the um, room are four tables, and in your own time, you can go and get the juice and the cracker and, and use these metaphors to remind yourself that Jesus is here, and it's a way of becoming aware of God's presence. We're gonna play a song while you do that in your own time and in your own way. And just a reminder that everyone is welcome at the table. Communion's not for members. Communion's not for people who got their lives together. Jesus died for every single one of us before we got ourselves sorted out. And that's why we are all welcome to participate in this practice. Let's eat and drink together.
that we can become aware of your presence, that we can taste and see something that just reminds us of your love for us. And it's from this place that we remember that, Jesus, you were fully human and fully divine. That you know everything we've thought, felt, done, you, you, you've, you've seen it all, you've carried it all, you know it, and so there's nothing we can bring to you that we could reflect on, that we could pray about, that's a surprise to you. We thank you for your presence in that, in the good and the bad, and the challenges and the celebrations of our lives. You're, you're in all of it, we just sometimes don't notice that. So won't you help us to notice that now, God, as we reflect? Holy Spirit, won't you make us more aware of your presence? So that we might feel you close and near as you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. So if that first step is to kind of even physically bring ourselves into awareness of God, whether it's eating something or drinking something or singing a song or kneeling, and so often we need to like engage our bodies to kind of go, okay, God, I'm gonna be aware of you. The second practice that I wanna invite you to participate in now is to become aware of God's presence by reviewing your year with gratitude. And you'll see a pen and paper next to you, and I wanna encourage you to pick that up and, and to specifically look back over 2019 and identify a couple of things that you're grateful for. You know, maybe there's an event that took place. Maybe it's something you had to, you were able to draw courage to kind of face. It doesn't have to be something amazing, but you're grateful for the way God saw you through that. Maybe there was love and support that you received through this year, but why don't you jot down couple of things that you're grateful for as you look back on 2019. I stand with so many questions. 
I know 2019 has been a tough year for many people, but how many of you feel a little surprised when you think back, actually there's some stuff I'm really grateful for? So often that's the start of becoming aware that God has actually been present. Maybe it was a hard year, maybe it was a tough year, but if there are things on your list right now, it means that there is the potential, the spark, the seed, the, the, the glimpse that God actually has been with you. The third step in our reflection journey, the third step is to pay attention to your emotions. And sometimes we have to do this really intentionally because our emotions are something that we can so often like keep at bay, hold at bay, push down, make sure that they don't you know, rear their ugly heads and take over. But often what happens is that our emotions are where God is trying to grab our attention and say something to us. Sometimes our anger is a clue to something that's not okay in our lives, that boundaries have been crossed or there's some kind of injustice. Sometimes our, our emotion of guilt or shame is God grabbing our attention to say, hey, there's something going on in your life that's, I've got something better for you than that. Sometimes the joy or the excitement we feel is God grabbing our attention and saying, I've got good things in store, there's a purpose and a plan. So when we notice what our emotions are, we start to become aware that God is with us, that God is at work, that there's something going on. And so as you think about those memories, as you reflect back on your year, here's some questions for you to do for step three. Why don't you just think about where you've really felt joy in 2019? And, and maybe identify some things that have troubled you, that have worried you, that have kept you up at night, and maybe pop down one or two of the challenges you face. And you don't have to tell anyone or show anybody this kind of thing, but take some time to reflect on these questions because this is part of us recognizing God's activity in our lives. Let's look at these things together. that stuff in your life, you can move on to step four. And step four is to choose one of these things that's featured in your year and to pray about it. And I'm looking at the list that I've just made and I'm thinking, well, you know, when I look at what's brought me to true joy in the last year, I'm thinking, you know what, I need to actually do that more. I need to make sure that I, I, 
practice that or do that thing a little bit more. When I look at some of the things that have challenged me, I feel really humbled and like, well, I've got a lot of growing to do in that part of my life. So, you know, some of those are pleasant and some of those are unpleasant. Some of them you want to like avoid and others you're like, oh, that's a great little thing to reflect on. But settle on one of them. And what I'd like you to do is to allow these two questions to fuel your prayer. Have you noticed God's presence in any of this? And how can you respond to God now? Perhaps your response is one of gratitude. Your, perhaps, your, perhaps your response is one of desperation. Like, God, you really need to help me. I'm still wrestling with this thing. This thing keeps showing up in my life. But whatever you've noticed on that piece of paper for you, won't you take a couple of minutes now to pray about it? And praying is just talking to God. You can do that in the silence of your heart. You can write it down. You can just kind of reflect on it. But speak to God about what's shown up for you in this time of reflection. this reflection journey is to look forward. We've looked back, we've kind of taken a bit of stock on where we're at right now, but looking forward into 2020. You know, we're going to see a remarkable year in 2020, if not simply that we get to witness a unique season in the history of humanity of 2020. And I'm not going to like overread or overanalyze that, but just the sense that there's a I don't know about you, but 2019 has felt tough. It's felt challenging for so many people. And so are we gonna bring 2019 with us into 2020 or are we gonna gaze forward and see things a little clearer with God's perspective? And so just as we close, I would like you to make a list of what you're anticipating for 2020. Maybe it's stuff you know is gonna happen. Maybe there's a child that's gonna be born into your family. Maybe there's some event taking place. You know, but, but list what you know is coming, whether it's a challenge or a blessing, and, and write down a few of your hopes for 2020. Things that you're longing for, that you're trusting God for, or maybe some things that you know may come your way that are gonna be difficult. Take a minute, because then we're gonna close together in praying for what lies ahead. Won't you stand? If you're not finished, you can take some time to do this on your own, but 
I don't wanna leave this today without us praying. Let's pray together. This process of reflection that we've done, it's actually called the examen. It's a really old Christian practice from like hundreds of years ago where the priests would sit and examine, or examen, examine their day. And they would do these steps at the end of each day. And I, I, I try and remember to do this um, as I lie in bed at night. And if you look on the screen now, you kind of see a, a synopsis of what the reflection process is that we look at, that we ask for the grace of God we did that through communion, that we give thanks and we review with gratitude what's happened, that we look back over our day and we recognize and we say, God, draw my attention to what's happened in this day, that we face our mistakes, that we look our challenges, our emotions, our feelings, our things in the eye, and then we look forward to the next day with God's perspective. I see a couple of you taking photos of this. You might wanna do that because this is a really helpful way for us to do what we set out to do when we gathered here earlier. And that is to notice and to increase our awareness of God's hearness. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that no matter what this process looked like, whether it was filled with things that stress us out or whether it's filled with a sense of anticipation, whatever, whatever we've reflected on, whatever's been brought up for us, you know it. You love us. You see everything about us and you love us still. And may that, may that bring us hope in the face of our future. May that comfort us in our struggles of today. And may we be able to see your handprint on our lives as we look back, that it would build our faith, that it would build our trust, that you are faithful, that you are good, that you are with us. And Jesus, as we prepare our hearts for you this Advent season, may we become aware of your presence and notice that you are here. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, please come forward. May this Advent season be full of love for you.